Do not confuse this with treatment or mental health advice or direction. Nothing on this podcast is made to supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your mental health caretakers. Although David Kozlowski is a licensed marriage and family therapist, he is not functioning as a certified mental health professional in this environment. But same applies to any professionals who may appear on the Light the Fight podcast. Hey there, welcome to Light the Fight. And this is um, this is Heidi Swap, and I'm actually coming to you a little bit solo. Um, Brandon's here, and so he's uh, he's gonna back me up <laughs> if things you know if I need him. Um, David, our fearless uh, guiding counselor, he, he probably won't want me to say that. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Is ill. And um, so he has asked me to just, you know, the show must go on, I think. And so, um, so I got this, call, I got this text from him just a few hours ago, and he said, you know, I really think that you should just go by yourself. You're gonna be fine. And I, and I was like, oh no, what am I gonna say? What do I have to say that will add value? And then I don't want anybody to think I'm counseling them. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try to like take that role of David, um, and so not, not no jokes and no lie. I've kind of really had a prayer in my heart um, for the last few hours as I've really been thinking um, about what I wanted to share tonight. And you know, interestingly enough, I had like a whole outline prepared for what um, David and I were going to talk about tonight. Um, actually, two different outlines depending on what we're going to be feeling. And those are both just completely out the window. Um, I even tried to get Eric to come, my husband, to come and um, speak on the podcast. But I think he was afraid that maybe, you know, there'd be some emotions, <laughs> which, you know, nobody nobody likes that just like th- thrown up, thrown up, thrown on him. So anyway, um, so I have had a couple of different thoughts on what I wanted to share. And so here I go into the wild blue yonder um, all by myself. And I hope that you'll you'll stay with me here, that you'll stick it out with me. Um, anyway, I'm going to take a minute and tell you a little bit about my background, where I come. And I want to share a story that has made a tremendous impact on me. And as my role here at Light the Fight in my life has evolved, um, how this story has really been like this kind of baseline benchmark moment for me. Um, if you've heard me, me share the story, you know, I'm sorry in advance, but um, this, this really goes back to, and this week, this week on Friday is my, mine and Eric's our 24th wedding anniversary. So I mean, it's kind of a big one. And and I'll be honest, like two or three nights ago, I'm laying in bed thinking, holy crap, is this 25? Because I should probably be planning something if it was 20. So I was really I was like, oh, oh yeah, it's only 24. <laughs> no pressure on the 24th. 
Um, but in actuality, it's a really long time. And, um, you know, I was kind of marveling at the ups and the downs and the, and the good years and the tough years and, and, uh, and what was 2018 and, and what will 2019 be? Um, but so if I just take a minute and put it in reverse, when we got married right here during this special holiday season, we just thought we would throw a little kerosene to the fire. And I think that obviously when we were, um, let's see, I was 22. Eric had just turned, was going to be turning 24. Yes, Brandon, your age. Um, actually, Eric was getting uh, turning 24 the next day after we got married. And at that time, we just did not have any perspective on what a wedding anniversary is going to do to every Christmas. A wedding anniversary and a birthday is going to do to every Christmas in our future. Um, but 20, 24 years ago, all that mattered was that we wanted to be together and that we were starting out our life. We were super excited. And, um, and we did know we wanted to be parents. Um, now, at this time, just a little background information and probably TMI, really. Um, right before we got married and we went in to, like, have the discussion with the with my doctor, get on some birth control pills and, and all that stuff, we discovered that I had this enormous cyst um, growing on one of my ovaries. And um, my appointment turned into an emergency surgery that day. And um, I just had no idea what I was in store for. We were told that day that the doctor, when, when, I rem when he removed one of my ovaries and a bunch of other stuff, I guess, in there. He didn't know how this was going to affect my ability to have kids. And um, there in the next year, Eric and I had a lot of conversations about, did we want to be preventing if it was going to be hard for us to have kids? And our parents were like, yes, you better prevent. And i um, super nervous that we were going to get pregnant right away and um, we still had a ton of schooling ahead of us. N neither of us had any clue what we were doing, of course. And um, as luck would have it, we decided to, we decided not to prevent getting pregnant. And four years went by in our marriage, and I didn't get pregnant at all. And I started to sort of have this panicking situation that I would never be able to get pregnant and um. We weren't sure if we were going to start getting really serious about trying to get, you know, it's just, it's just like such a hard thing to know. But I could just remember like I had friends around me that were getting pregnant without any problem. And, um, and I just felt broken. And, uh, anyway, um, Eric and I took a job opportunity with his family business. We moved up to Vancouver, British Columbia. And we decided not to not to worry about trying to start a family. We were starting a new business, and we were having fun. We loved living up there. And um, lo and behold, we we were pregnant. We got pregnant. And um, I, both of us, were just so excited, just because we just didn't know if it was ever going to happen. Um, we were thrilled, and at that time, I was. I was a scrapbooker. 
I was a memory keeper, even even back at that time. Um, at that point, and you know, I've got tons of great scrapbooks of our adventures, um, the whole move up to Arizona or up to California. Oh my gosh, Canada, all documented. Um, we bought season passes when we lived up there. We just uh, to to Whistler and Blackcomb. We had a a great time. And and also a lot of stress when we were learning how to run a business. Um, so immediately when I found out I was pregnant, I bought a little journal at, um, at a store, cute little paper store, and I started to keep a pregnancy journal. And I was just like, it was so exciting. We, we had that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. We had this doctor that... Um, he was a he was a funny a funny guy, Doctor Hasham. Shout out, don't know. Wouldn't that be funny if he was a listener? Anyway, Doctor Hasham, and um, there were some things that were different about socialized medicine in Canada, and um, fi- you know, we weren't we weren't allowed to find out what the sex of the baby was. They also really discouraged um, using an epidural, and um, all in all, I did not plan on having a baby in Canada, but, but we were, we were finding someone that was going to take over our business and we were going to move back down to Arizona. So we had a lot to do. Um, I diligently kept notes in this journal, just about how excited I was. Um, every little thing like, oh, you're as big as a peanut, (laughs) you know, or, or whatever, like all the little things talking about, um, the preparations that we were making, the excitement that we were having. We didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. Um, Talking about the things that we did, I was making a little quilt, um, just kind of on and on. 28 weeks rolls around, and Eric and I go, we have a company party, or a company, like a sales meeting up in Vancouver, and everybody from the company comes up, and we have all these activities planned, and one of the activities was sea kayaking, which I felt like I could do just fine. Um, But no, I went into preterm labor. So I immediately like got into the situation where I couldn't, I couldn't go to work anymore. I couldn't leave the country. I was, we'd already shipped our furniture home. Um, so we had a futon and I was on bed rest on the futon. And um, so I'm still just writing in the journal, making the little preparations. Our plans had changed. Now we would be, we would be staying in Canada. Colton would be born in Canada. Um, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know what the, what the baby was. And so I, I had this little onesie made that said made in Canada. And that's what I wanted to have the baby, you know, bring the baby home in or put the baby in for a photo for, I already had like the baby announcement all planned. Um, so I kept, you know, sometimes Eric would write in the, in the journal things that he was excited about or things that were going on. And as we even as we like bought things, we put the receipts and the tags in the journal. Just cute little journal. <clears throat> um, then Colton was born. And Colton was born with kind of a interesting, unusual um, situation. He has 
he, he was born with something called hemifacial microtia, which meant that half of his face was a little underdeveloped. And it wasn't super overwhelmingly noticeable, but he was born without an ear on one side. And, um, of course, I just thought he was the cutest baby I'd ever seen in my life. And it didn't have any effect on how I felt about him. But his little life got started out with a lot of doctors, a lot of appointments of them trying to figure out neurologically if there's anything else wrong that we couldn't see and dealing with all this stuff. And so I was tracking and documenting all these appointments, all the things that we were learning, um, things that I was worried about, dreams that I was having, um, experiences that, that were going on. And in fact, when he was four days old, um, we got on our first airplane back down to the United States. Um, and my parents drove our car back home. And, you know, so it, it was, it was interesting. And as a brand new mom, I was worried and nervous and, um, anxious about how this was going to play out. The doctor had told me some things that I just I just didn't know what was gonna what was gonna happen in the future, um, and so we were just kind of figuring it out, trying to figure out how to feed this kid, and he was a very unhappy baby. Anyway, all the while, um, he was the first baby on both sides of our family. Eric and I are both the oldest children, and everybody just loved him. Just were so excited. It was he was the everybody's favorite thing in the world, favorite source of entertainment. He was funny and fun and beautiful and joyful. And um, even aunts and uncles and grandmas would write in this little journal about how much we loved him. We just adored him. Um, pretty soon, baby number two, Corey, came along. And that's about the time that the journal ended. And, um, so I think it was, it ran for about 18 months ish, 17 months, maybe. Um, and then the journal got, you know, put away somewhere, wherever. Okay. So fast forward to about, I want to say Colton was age 12 ish, maybe 13. And um, I remember this being a little bit of a difficult time in our life. We had moved in, we had, we'd been living in China, we moved home from China, and then we'd moved again pretty quickly um, out to the area that we move, live now. But Colton had, had had three schools pretty quickly that he had to attend, um, and he wasn't excited about leaving his friends. He was unhappy. Um, he wasn't a happy kid at this juncture. In fact, he was downright mean. He was mean to siblings. He was grouchy. It was, and I even sometimes would say, you know, he was like the, the tail that wagged the dog. Um, when he was mad, it just put everybody in a bad mood. It was, um, he had a, he had had and continues to have a lot of influence in our home on both Eric and I, on our siblings, he has this really uncanny ability to set the tone in our home. Um, anyway, so it's at this particular time, and we're talking, this is like quick math in my head, seven, eight years ago. Um, we're living in a rental home, and 
I wanted the whole entire family to help clean the basement. The basement was a mess. And it, it was an unfinished basement with just tons and tons of boxes because we're kind of in this moving we'd we'd move several times and nothing was really settled and so it was like it was just kind of like you'd go through a box open it up leave it open and it was just kind of spread all over the basement so I was like on this mission like let's clean out the basement and the assignment that I gave Colton P.S. he did not want an assignment was not interested did not want to help but I was like bound and determined everybody was going to help um I gave him the assignment to take a bunch of little scrapbooks and journals and things like that that I had kept and made um, out of a cardboard box, put it into a rubber-made container for if and when the basement flooded. Because really, it's just classic basement behavior to flood. And so, you know, don't leave your crap down there in, in a box because it will just soak up, ruin your scrapbooks. Um. So what had happened, he'd gone down there and um, started going through this box and and was just basically, you know, chucking my handmade, beautiful photo album journals into this box and um, inadvertently ran across the the pregnancy journal. And um, I noticed him flipping through it. He asked me what it was. It says his, his name on the front. Um, There's a picture of him on the very first page, made in Canada. Um, And I said, you know, kind of nostalgically, I was like, oh, this is the journal that I kept for my pregnancy with you and and when you were first born. And I kind of flipped through a couple pages, and I was like, oh, you know, such such good memories or something like that. And I'm like, come on, let's get back to work. Um, And then I went on about my business, whatever, whatever I was working on, and out of the corner of my eye, and I think, let me tell you, that all the siblings let me know that Colton had taken a break, and he was sitting over on the side um, reading the journal. And um, everybody was mad that he was not working and just reading the journal. And I was kind of like, just, shh, shh, just, everybody just leave him alone, because if he, you know, at least he wasn't bothering anybody or throwing off the whole, the whole process. Um, I would say he was reading for over an hour. I don't, now I don't remember how long, but it was a good long time. And it's a, it's a, it's a little journal, but it, but it was a lot written. And if you see me write, I can write nice and small. Um, so I can remember vividly, I was upstairs. I was actually all the way up in the boy's bedroom when Colton came to find me and he was holding the journal in his hands and he walked up kind of behind me and said, mom. And I turned around and he has the journal and he kind of has these teary eyes, which wasn't normal, is not normal for Colton. And he says to me, mom, I didn't know you loved me so much. At which point I was like, what do you mean I don't, you don't know I love you? I do everything for you. I clean up. I pick up your crap. I do your laundry. I take you to school. I make your lunches. I, you know, I, I feed you. How can you possibly not know that I love you? And he just gave me this huge hug. And it, it, was, it was a very, very real 
hug. Um, I didn't think a ton of it. You know, I think I probably said something like, well, of course I love you, you turd. Um, I noticed that there was a bit of a turning point after this happened. He lined up on me in particular a lot. Um, I remember him starting to say thank you for making his lunch, telling me that he loved me when he would leave. And that hadn't been there before. And, you know, I was like, huh. Um, I appreciated it. From that time, I wouldn't say that he got super nice to his siblings. Although, you know, that kind of ebbs and flows. And I think that older brothers have a hard time with younger siblings for sure. And Brandon's nine has said yes, <laughs> for the record. Um, but something different happened in between Colton and I at that time. Um, and I will tell you, fast forward, I do have a very tender friendship and relationship with Colton that I believe had a turning point at that time when he was 13 years old, when he was able to read in my handwriting the words that I wrote that weren't fluff, that weren't made up, or weren't those things that moms have to say to their kids because they're the mom. They were, he, he got to read about how excited I was that he was coming into my life and how honored I was that he had chosen me to be his mother, how afraid I was that I wouldn't be good enough and how I promised I would do anything and everything and, and I would be the best I could be. And along with that, my worries and my fears, um, when we were faced with challenges and, um, over and over and over and over and over, the message is, I just love you so much. I just, I can't believe how much I love you, you know, just over and over. You know, I actually haven't talked to Colton about that experience ever again. Um, and so I don't even know if he would remember it or what he thought or what was going on in his mind. Um, as I sit here now, I think to myself, you know, I'm glad that I kept that journal because I believe that it changed the course of our relationship. I believe that. You know, I'm a scrapbooker, and so, yeah, of course I believe that. Um, but here's the thing that I sort of have gleaned from this and that I want to bring up, and that when I share this story, which I think originally when I would share the story, it was a scrapbooking story. It was a story about why it's so important to write stuff down so that there's a record so that you can prove to your children that, yes, you do love them and that, yes, you did do things for them. Um, 
but now as I have have grown up and Colton has grown up and this story has still been part of my life as I've questioned my parenting um, and looked at what I'm actually communicating to my kids on a daily basis. That's what I want to talk. So I know that was kind of a long intro into what I want to talk to you about today. Do your children know that you love them? Unequivocally, with no conditions and no holdbacks that is dependent on their behavior or their grades or their choices. This is a hard, hard thing um, for me as a mom um, to separate, yes, I love you 100%, no matter what, from that was really stupid. And if you seriously don't pick up your wet towel one more time, I'm going to wring your neck. You know, like, and I I realize that for, for those of us with kids that are in the trenches, and by that I mean in your home, um, the demands and the needs of these kids are infinite. It doesn't stop. Um, And so the level of exhaustion and um, energy expenditure that is just in keeping them alive, just in keeping them clothed, fed, clean, functional, that's kind of our primary focus. Um, For those of you who can relate to the wet towel on the floor, um, almost or maybe in fact backing over a bike that's been left in the same place every single time, no matter how many times you say it, Um, shoes that are strewn all over the house, blatant disregard by leaving that chunk of toothpaste in the sink. I mean, come on. It's, It's not like they can't see it. But... You know, like, here's the thing is, is as a parent, of course, every day of your life, you're doing everything for your child because you love them. You're going to work to pay the heating bill, to buy the Pringles, to put in the lunch. You know, you're signing them up for football so that they can have an experience so they can learn sportsmanship, so they can work as a team, so that, and then you scream at them the entire season to put away their cleats and hang up their pads. And, you know, like, these things that we do, whether it's cleaning up after them, making them food, getting them to where they're supposed to be, this is how This is because we love them. We want them to be successful. We want them to have experiences and grow. We want them to have connections. We want them to stay busy 
We want them to excel and um, figure out who they are, what they love. But sometimes from the kid's perspective, it doesn't say, I love you to them. They aren't getting that. They aren't gleaning that. And I know we've talked about this here on the podcast before, but um, in this last week, there's four individuals that have reached out to me. These are individuals who I know well. They're my friends. Um, And each one of the situations that was going on that they reached out to me in distress for um, were very different from each other. Um, and, and, and by that, the issues are, you know, with spouses, um, with children, with extended family members, um, they were fundamentally relationship issues. And as I would talk, and, and actually most of these were texting and DM conversations that, that were going on for a long, long time, really what this boiled down to was, does this person actually believe that you accept them and love them? Two of the cases that were going on, um, and I, and I felt myself relating to this. To, to, I mean, I, I can relate to these people who are reaching out to me. Um, a couple of the situations: the children, the kids, teens, are making bad decisions that were harming them. And as a mom, you look at this trajectory of, holy crap, if you keep doing this, this is where you're going to end up. David likes to call that the time machine. And that was just that, that for me, that was like classic Heidi. I think it's classic all of us as parents. Like, oh my gosh, if you are going to fail this math test, you're probably going to flunk out of college and you're never going to amount to anything. Like, that's where we go, right? Um, the conversations that I was having was, was because bad decisions were made. But as we boiled it down and talked about it, fundamentally, these kids were making the decisions they were making because they didn't feel like, because they wanted to be accepted. The the acceptance issue is so huge. The desire to be accepted and it doesn't matter if it's a spouse, if it's a family member, if it's a teenager, Every one of us wants to be accepted so bad. And you know what? That acceptance comes so easy for some people. And it is so hard for others. 
I think for a second about my 13-year-old, Colton. And, you know, he's on his third school. He hadn't really landed in with some friends. Um, He's trying to figure it out. And I can remember him coming home. He's in seventh grade, a new middle school, middle of the year. And he was sitting in the in the lunchroom by himself, listening to conversations going on around him, feeling completely alone, lost, not accepted, afraid, unhappy, dark. Um, so, so what do we do when we want to be accepted is we try to fit in. And, um, you know, like depending on who you want to be accepted by sort of fundamentally, um, your behaviors are going to vary depending on who you want to be accepted by, right? And, uh. As I thought about the individuals I was talking to and the decisions that these kids were making, um, they weren't themselves. They weren't acting in the way that their that their moms were like, this is not even my kid. This is not how they behave. This is not who I raised. This is not the person that's been in my household for this many years. I don't even know them anymore. Because they were trying to fit in. And and maybe that was a um that requires trying on something else, trying on a different persona, trying on some different decisions, trying on um different vocabulary, different clothing. Because you have to kind of see how that goes. Um, now this is what scares us as a mom is we start to see these changes that are happening and our time machine brain thinks, well, crap, if I don't intervene, you know, this trajectory is going to just flick off and, and I'm not even going to know this person anymore. And they're going to be doing drugs and lost forever, you, you know, because we are worst case scenario creatures. Okay. I am. Maybe you're not. I'm so good at the worst case scenario. I can nail out the worst case scenario so quick. Um, but there's two things that I want to sort of put on the table here. Um, the first one is a challenge or an encouragement, a suggestion, as David likes to say, to allow a little bit of space for that trying on to happen before you completely shut it down or pull back the reins or squelch it completely. Because chances are, as they try it on, and have some natural consequences that might be some bad decisions and some visits to principal office or, heaven forbid, a 
intersection with the <clears throat> police officer. Um, if you allow your child that space and that love from you, knowing that, you know, there's a chance that maybe they're not going to like this and there's a chance that maybe there wasn't will. And, and this is where it gets super scary. Scary on both sides because if your child no longer feels accepted in the circle of you inside your family because the choices that they're making to try to be accepted somewhere else, then guess what happens? They just get squeezed out at home. And so we're so busy saying, no, 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 we don't do that here. We're not that kind of people. This is unacceptable for us. And when our kids start to make bad decisions, immediately we want to be unaccepting, non-accepting. Of course, because we're parents. That's our responsibility. But what if it is our responsibility to accept them always, no matter what, even when they're making bad decisions, even when they are trying on other things that eh, we know doesn't fit or won't fit or they won't like or doesn't have a, a, a happy ending or at least an ending that we think um, is best for them. So that's the, that's the first thing, you know, whatever's happening, um, in that space that I'm talking about, this little bit of extra leeway that we allow our kid to sort of try something on, ask us a question, um, have a doubt about a religion, have, um, you know, disagree with us, heaven forbid, right? What does this space look like? What does this circle of a little bit of extra breathing room, and when does it start? Like what age does it start? Um, I want to sort of interject that if David was here, maybe he would play that, like that card of pretend like you know less. <laughs> Um, so the, dang it, I never can get his sayings right. That's so embarrassing. No less, so, so that your no less, so that your kids can know more. Um, this space that is scary, you guys. And I'm talking to myself because I'm in this situation where I'm trying to create this space for, for one of my children. Um, this is a space of listening. So that's kind of my my second point. As as we clear out this space, that um, we kind of push aside some of those predetermined expectations that you predetermined while the child was in the womb, while you were writing in your pregnancy journal, right? You're going to kind of push back some of those expectations and that rigidity of this is how you will do it, 
and or else we aren't going to be friends. As we push back some of these expectations, then we start having an opportunity to listen. Um, this is when you check all of your lectures at the door, particularly preaching. This is when you open up a forum of, huh, interesting. And so, you know, you ask, so what do you, and I'm I'm going to give you a question. I'm going to give you a question that I think has a lot of value to ask. And obviously, don't lead with this question because David would be super mad and disappointed in me and in you. But here's a question. And you guys, this kind of concept has kind of um, just been distilled in on me. And and um, ask your the person that you're giving this space to, what they hope for. What do they hope? Now, I think that that's a really interesting question. Um, What do you hope? What do you hope is going to happen? What do you hope for? What are you hoping is going to happen if you make this decision or this decision or what is your hope. Now, recently I was listening to another podcast and um, that's one of the questions that this gentleman asks his guests. And oftentimes the things that they hope for are not, like it might not even be possible ever, the hope. But he talks about how powerful it is to be able to say what you hope for. Parents, if you could give your children a chance to tell you, and I'm going to speak, you know, Heidi too, if I would give my kids a chance to tell me what they hope for. There's a lot of information packed in that kind of an, of an answer. Listen to that and not, um, again, not go in with the, with the describing and telling them what they need to do. Um, You know, I love this. I love this when Brandon gives me a little note. It's not, grammar's not going to be correct. (laughs) So this is, and and I'm going to say this because it is interesting. And Brandon's 22 and I'm 40 something. There's been some debates about how old I actually am, but. Um, Brandon's note says this. It's more important. Brandon, do you want to say it? We're going to let Brandon just chime right in here. Okay, so what I wrote down for a note is maybe it's more important to have space to, to accept your child and allow them to try to figure out who they are and how they're trying to fit in. Because you'll most likely be in the know because you're being that trusted resource for them. You're that trusted parent where, okay, that if for me, if I'm growing up as a teenager, that if I want to 
let's say quit football or do something else in school or transfer schools that if my mom or my parents allow me to just vent that and allow them to say, hey, this is what I'm thinking without the ridicule, they're more likely to be in the know. And then I feel that, oh, okay, so I can be independent. I can be my own person. They're allowing me to make these decisions, but they're allowing me to stay in this bound. So instead of being like, well, my parents don't listen to me. They don't care about me. They don't trust me. I'm doing whatever the heck I want anyways. Right. Which can some, for sometimes, I know some friends who I went to school with, they rebel and become what you're mentioning, that time machine of the what ifs and the worst case scenario. That's what your kids could become because they felt like they weren't able to be trusted and you don't want them to feel pushed out at school or pushed out at home. So maybe if you can be that trusted resource for them, it's going to allow them to try things. But maybe I know, uh, I can't remember, I think it was Jock who gave this example. I don't want my daughter to do cheerleading. I want her to wrestle. I'd rather her do cheerleading and rebel in that regard so she doesn't come home with a tattoo on her forehead one day. <laughs> well, and and that's just it. Like, um, and and I love I love what you what you said there because almost like listening equals love. I shouldn't say equal. It's part of, it's just part of the equation, right? People who um, take the time to hear you and listen to your ideas, listen to your fears, listen to your hopes, this is somebody who loves you. And, you know, I think that oftentimes, and, and I don't want to discount like actually saying I love you and actually looking at your kid in the eye, holding them by the head and saying, I, I absolutely love you no matter what. I do. I promise you I love you and I will be here for you. And I, I know this is hard right now, but I want, I want to help you. Those words have to come out of our mouth. In addition to backing them up with action of that you really do love them no matter what, which kind of now shifts into this, like, how do you show acceptance even when you hate what they're doing? Like, is that, and, and so this is probably where, man, I, I probably <laughs> need David here. Um, acceptance doesn't mean I love everything about what you're doing and I condone it and I think this is great and I agree. That's not acceptance. And I don't, I, you know, this is a really tough subject because as a parent, particularly when your child is doing things that the behavior is unacceptable, how do you accept them? Um, Which is why I think that this space, this little bit of space and leeway and listening is so, is so vital. If your child at that point can know that there is going to be punishments, yes. There are going to be behaviors that are not acceptable. Sorry. There are going to be curfews, and they will be 
um, you know, upheld. I'm a parent. Accepting is listening. Accepting is not um, expecting uh, another individual to see it exactly like you or do it exactly like you and loving them anyway. And one of the things that I want to say about that is being willing to just walk the path with them. Because I think oftentimes, and this is where I probably came from, this is my tendency is, okay, if this is what you're going to do, I'm stopping right here. I'm not stepping one more step on this path because we don't do this in our family or this is unacceptable to me. How would it be different even if I said, you know that I'm not okay with this, but I love you and I'm going to walk this with you. I'm going to stay by you. I'm going to, I'm going to be here for you. Um, when the people that we're in a relationship with, and so now I'm talking about whether it's a spouse or whether it's a, a child or a family member, even a friend, um, if they know that you love them, even if you don't like what's going on or like what they're doing or agree, there are volumes that are being spoken there. Um, and so that's where I kind of go back to that um, example that when Colton found those words that I had written, there was no doubt in his mind that I loved him. I had loved him for years and years. I had loved him before I ever met him. And it was documented. It was written down. He, it was true. It was truth. And we, you know, we may not all have pregnancy journals. And frankly, I only have one pregnancy journal. <laughs> and, um, and so each one of my other kids don't have this opportunity to read my mind um, as I was incubating my babies. But... There are ways that we can speak our truth and give our children our truth. And that does not mean we have to agree and like bad decisions that they're making. We can establish that, that we don't like it. But when we give that extra space of, I don't like this, but I, but I see that, you know, you want to fit in here. These are people that are important to you. What do you hope is going to happen? Okay, well, let's see how that goes. And then there's this chance that extra space is, is kind of given. Then there's that chance to kind of come back and have them say, it didn't work out how I thought it was going to work out. And you can say, Man. But at least you tried. Or I'm glad that you can see that now. Not the I told you so. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, go ahead, Brendan. I was just thinking maybe like an example of it. Um, so I have a brother who's 16 and he's in high school. And 
he's trying to figure out life. And maybe just that space is maybe they don't even always act on it. True. I, I know sometimes my my brother will text me or he'll call me or we're hanging out and he's like, I'm gonna do this, 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 and this and this. I'm like, Oh, okay. How do you think that's gonna work out? I may think it's ridiculous, right? But I know you had mentioned no lesser kids can know more. So I think when you get to that point of having the spaces, you've had statements, you're building trust, you've gotten to the point where they feel like they can talk to you and then not overreacting in that space, I think is what you're kind of saying. So in my situation, just putting myself in this spot and even just because I'm still younger and being a teen wasn't that far away from me, just what I would like and what I've done for my brother, at least try to, is if he's saying something outlandish or something crazy, I don't think that's going to be best for him. It's okay to be like, huh? Okay, so his name's Tom. Is all right, Tom. So walk me through how, how that would work. And sometimes he talks himself out of it. He's like, oh, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And maybe just being having that space just for them to sound things out. Because I can't tell you how many times my life plans have changed from from the ages of thirteen to eighteen. I mean, how many times <laughs> do your right. kids say, oh, yeah. I'm gonna go do this, and this is what's gonna happen, blah blah? And they're like, and you ask them ten, 10 minutes later, so you're gonna go do that? No, I'm not gonna go play Fortnite. I'm gonna go over to a friend's house. <laughs> but I thought your whole everything changes by a moment. So maybe just having that space for them to vent and get that out there because they trust you not to over, overreact or freak out. Maybe they do go try some things, but maybe the worst things that they were thinking, or in our eyes, what's the worst thing they could do, or what friends is, they figure it out themselves. But you were that soundboard. You didn't freak out on them you knew less so they could so they walk themselves down that path but you're just always there and you always know where their thoughts are at so instead of yeah being caught off guard it's like well i kind of knew what was going on and then if something's outlandish of course you're the parent you can say hey or for me when my brother tom says something like hey dude as your brother i gotta tell you i wouldn't do this and here's why i wouldn't personally do this and i just tell him why and he's like oh okay i said dude so do what you want to do and i don't think you should do it <laughs> right and that and that's you've got some good power there as an older brother too <laughs> that maybe trumps it a mom power sometimes <laughs> um i only hit him once every 10 times oh okay so so you're you're suppressing you're suppressing the violence there's, the there's no violence between me and him at all <laughs> absolutely none unless you ask my mom right okay um the last thing that I wanted to mention about that space, so like I said, it's a it's a space for accepting, um, a space for listening, a space for hopes, and and sharing those hopes, and the last thing and and love, um, both verbal love and also actionable love, and the last thing that I want to mention in this space is, is connection. And when you're mad at your kids, it's super hard to connect with them because you're only talking about the things that are going wrong. And, you know, when they're young, it's the, the bike that gets left behind the car or when they're teenagers, it's the toothpaste or the wet towel, or maybe it's, it's a great, it's grades or clothing or, um, what they're spending their time doing or who they're spending their time with. And so we end up just like harping constantly on these things that we don't like. That's every discussion, every conversation um, is is focused on um, kind of the negative aspects. Well, that's not, that's not where the connection is going to happen. Uh, so connection 
it has to happen outside of those really hot, stressful places. Um, so I want to kind of talk about a couple of ideas for connection because I think that it's hard. And, and if David was here, he would say, you just got to get creative, which always is like, all right, so give me some ideas. <laughs> um, for me and my family, I find that photos and family stories are uh, powerful connectors. Um, getting people talking about good times, good memories, people, places, things, when you had a great time. Um, this takes me back to scrapbooking again um, and why I think that that is so why that's so valuable and so important. But you have fo- you have photos on your phone. Um, you may have scrapbooks around. You may have um, framed photos. Memories are powerful connectors and reminding us um, of the connections and reminding us of, of the love that we that we have there and the good stuff, the, the common ground. Um, the next thing that I would say is things that you enjoy to do together. Um, maybe it's as simple as scratching their back. There is nobody that doesn't like their back scratched. Okay? This is a fundamental thing. Um, playing with hair, playing with their hair and scratching their back is a connector. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know why, but it works. Just be quiet and scratch their back. Okay. Um, (laughs) you know, I have mentioned that dance parties are fun for us. Um, that seems to be a way that we release the tension, funny movies, um, listening to a fun comedian, um, whatever, a way to get you laughing. Laughing is a connector. Um, but whatever you're doing, food, fun, um, whatever you're doing, put your phone down. Even if they haven't put their phone down, put your phone, and not just down, away Put them first. Put them priority. Put them number one. They will maybe resist in the beginning. Maybe they'll have a hard time talking, and so you can't do all the listening. Maybe they don't know what they hope for. Um, Maybe they're resistant to you telling them that you love them. Maybe they're still going to be mad. Maybe they're not done being mad. Whatever that happens, this space, this bubble has to live there. It's not temporary. It's something that you're actually building. You can start building it when your kids are young. You can always, at any time, start building this space. Um, you can even describe it to them. You can even tell them what you're doing. You can even tell them your intention of this space. You can let them know that this space goes both ways. Space for you, space for them. But it's not it's not a space that you have to do backbands and contortions and and stand on your hands and do tricks inside. 
It's just a space that you belong in, that you and that person, um, the, the other person in your life that you're creating this, this relationship with gets to be themselves. And yeah, maybe they're trying on some other things. Maybe, maybe there's kinks in the system. Maybe they're trying to figure some things out. No matter what they're fighting, no matter what the demons uh, that, are, that are brewing, um, this, this space is big enough for that. Um, I hope that, that you kind of have a visual for that and know that when somebody really believes that you love them, fundamentally, it's a lot easier to have this space of, some people would call it a space of safety. Some people would call it a space of belonging. Um, to me, it's just, it's just extra breathing room. It means that something that happens doesn't mean that that's the end of the story yet. There's room. There's room to grow. There's room to figure it out. And there's time in this space as well. Um, I don't know. I obviously didn't have David with me. Brandon was good, good help here. Brandon, is, do you have any parting words, anything that you would add to that? No, I just know, I mean, for me, I would say that's the biggest way that I know that my relationship with my mom has changed. I didn't have that. And we had a, we had a conversation with when I was like 16, 17, and it still holds now as me being 22 is I know that no matter what's going on is I can go there and there is that space just to talk about what's going on and vent and me trying to figure out life. I just still have that trust. So something you can establish now that at least for me, it's lasted into being an adult child and just we're both adults, but she's still my mom and I still know that I can trust her there and I still have that. So I may not reach out to her all the time. I may not be coming over for every Sunday night dinner. Mm-hmm. But whenever I need something or need to talk, I know she's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate it. I think I think that there needs to be this sacred space for each one of the people in your life. Um, it's going to be a, di- a little bit different for each one of your kids and each one of the siblings and for your spouse and for your friends and for those people who are important to you that, um, that it's just... And I, I do like that word, that sacred place where um, where you can belong in and, and, uh, and you're safe and um, cared for. All right. I did it. I did my first um, podcast without David. Actually, I did another one, a Mavara podcast without David, but I had... Um, Michelle and I guess I've, I've got you so I wasn't so solo um, hopefully that all has some redeemable um, <laughs> makes sense there you go I, what I hope is that <laughs> what I hope is that that makes sense um, anyway I want to thank you for listening I want to thank you for sharing this with others who um, might be walking this difficult walk of of trying to strengthen and build relationships with the people that they love, maybe struggling with um, a relationship or have teenagers who are struggling and 
um, need just that extra little uh, insight or ideas. Um, once those ideas kind of form, then you go with it and you try it. Um, so in general, David has this rule that he doesn't let me read um, our reviews. Mostly because if I read anything bad, it totally makes me sad. So I don't, I don't normally, I don't ever go and read the reviews on our podcast. Um, but I guess David was like trying to hype me up to do the podcast by myself tonight. And um, so he sent me some of the reviews that I was allowed to read. And I got to tell you, I was like grinning from ear to ear. Just, it just made my whole day. Um, but I want to read this one. And I'm going to give him a shout out because why not? Matt Rollins, um, he says this. He gives us five stars, which I appreciate. Um, it says, I'm a graduate student working on a master's in marriage and family counseling. I feel like I should give some of my tuition money to David and Heidi. I've had so many insights from listening about parent-child-family interactions that have enriched my lear- what I'm learning in class. It's helped me with my own teenagers as well. I refer friends to this podcast by telling them it's like getting free therapy. Thanks, David and Heidi, for giving your time to this. I will be using, quote, Davidisms, unquote, with my clients someday. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, I know that we're not perfect, um, and I know that the... Not everything that we say is going to is gonna work every time for everybody. Um, and that there, there will be people who give us negative feed, feedback, which is okay. I won't read it, but it's okay. <laughs> um, but that, it just kind of made me smile. He, he sent me several and um, they, were, they were reassuring and um, I appreciate it. It doing this podcast is a really interesting experience, an interesting journey, and I'm thankful for it. Um, last thing I want to mention before we close is that January 31st, right here, um, locally at Corner Canyon High, David and I will um, be presenting a first responder event. It's been um, sponsored by 1-800-CONTACTS, who is our community sponsor. And we would love to invite you to come. It's free of charge. Um, and we were super excited. So put that down in your calendar. You'll be hearing more about it. Um, but I just want to make sure that everybody knows, my gosh, it's like just a little over a month away from when we're recording this podcast right now. Anyway, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you want to reach out to us, you can do that on our website, which is lightthefight.com. You can also reach out to us on Instagram or Facebook at lightthefight. We love to hear from you. We love to hear your wins. We love to hear your questions. Um, And we love to hear your reviews. So thank you once again for listening and for cheering us on. And thank you for helping us to like the fight.
Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save 